0: Welcome to The Flourish Podcast with Dr. Tony Ingram, where you will hear straight from some of the best practitioners and leaders in wellness on how to take control of your family's physical, spiritual, and mental health, because we are all designed to flourish. As a reminder, this show is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on The Flourish Podcast should be taken as medical advice. For your own specific medical advice, please always consult with your own healthcare providers. Now for today's show, I was actually being interviewed by the lovely Ashley Dealey on her podcast, Welcome to Wellness. So just a little bit about Ashley. She's a a former personal trainer, Pilates instructor, and certified nutrition coach with a degree in kinesiology. She's worked with professional athletes, Olympic athletes, as well as the general population to not only increase physical strength and functional movement, but also to provide actionable strategies to enhance various aspects of their lives. She's now the host of Welcome to Wellness, a podcast focused on achieving optimal wellness through biohacking. By experimenting with cutting edge techniques, supplements, and lifestyle adjustments, She shares knowledge of how to improve cognitive function, energy levels, sleep quality, and overall quality of life. New episodes of Welcome to Wellness are released every Friday, and you can learn more about her by visiting her website, www.ashleydaily.com. And there you go. Uh, Just some fun facts about Ashley is she's originally from Montana. She's a certified sommelier lived in Australia for five years and married an Aussie. And in her spare time, she loves to cook, read and watch the NFL. And I tell you what, I had not met Ashley prior to this interview. And she was so much fun to talk to. We had a great conversation. Uh, It lasted a good while. So we'll see if the editors want to keep all of that in. Uh, But I think it turned out great. It was such a good conversation that we actually decided to schedule another interview of part two. So you will also be getting the part two in a couple of weeks as well. So I hope you enjoy. This was really a good, like I said, a fun conversation and a good overall, like frequently asked questions that I get all of the time. So lots of good dental meaty stuff in there. And I hope you enjoy. Hey, Dr. Ingram, thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I want to learn a little bit more about your specialty, which is being a holistic biological dentist. Can you explain what that entails?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a general dentist. If you, you know, ask any of our governing bodies in dentistry. I am a general dentist. There's no technically no specialty, but through my own health challenges uh, and my own journey, which we may talk about in just a minute, if you would want to, um, I have extra training. It's just my continuing education interest to study all things holistic and that includes biological dentistry and biological ways of practicing dentistry.
1: Okay. Well, I definitely want to get into it. I have so many questions to ask you today, but I would definitely love to hear what guided you into becoming a holistic dentist and what your health challenges entail.
0: Yeah. So I was, it was in 2011, I had a a young family. I was a new mom. I was working really hard. I was working full-time, plus being a new mom. And I was opening up my own dental practice as well. And it was really, really challenging. My habits weren't as great. Uh, And so I got sick. And like a lot of holistic practitioners... Me getting sick and having to go through that journey myself and kind of go down all the rabbit holes of healing led me to start making comparisons. Like, okay, so I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It's an autoimmune condition, as many people know, an autoimmune condition that is one of the causes is a dysbiosis in the gut, you know, an imbalance of your microbiome that causes a lot of inflammation. Well, the more I studied, holy smokes, what I do every day for a living is all about bi- balancing the microbiome and calming down inflammation. So as I got better, and I did, I got well, I was, I've was i been in remission for over 10 years now. Um, I know, right? Uh, as I got into remission and was figuring out how to heal myself, I just said, you know, I am really such a hypocrite if I can't figure out how to do the same thing for my patients, because we're all, everybody is trying to calm down these chronic diseases. We're trying to treat what to date, you know, the last several decades, the medical system hasn't really been super effective in treating Um, And in fact, my own, my own physicians, when I was diagnosed, it was, okay, here's your list of medications that you're going to take. You're going to be on these probably forever, but eventually these are going to stop working. So we're going to have to put you on something stronger. And then eventually there won't be any medications left to give you. And there's at least a 40% chance you're going to need surgery to remove all or part of your colon. So as a 30-year-old and maybe a little bit stubborn, I just did not accept that answer. That was not okay with me. Um, and so same same with our patients. You know, tooth decay, gum disease, this does not have to be something that you're destined to struggle with your whole life. Let's get to where we can actually give your body what it needs to support healing and actually Heal these chronic conditions, heal these diseases so that you can go on and flourish and thrive and be well for the rest of your life. How
1: beautifully put. I love that this maybe really bad thing that happened to you ended up being a really great journey for you now to practice oh. listed dentistry to be able to teach other people. It sounds like that was a pretty rough um rigmarole that you were put through, was there a pivotal moment when, when you realized uh, this is not for me? Like I I can't be on these medications for life and have 40% of my colon removed.
0: It was literally that day in that doctor's office with the diagnosis. I, something in me said, no, this is not right. And I didn't know what was right. I didn't know which direction to go. But I knew that day that that was not okay.
1: So, will you walk me through part of your healing journey? How you found other modalities to eventually get your Crohn's into remission?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of avoiding pharmaceuticals when you can. But man, I am so so grateful for them when they're needed and when you can get, use a pharmaceutical to get you over a hump. And so since I didn't know any better, I just, you know, in the beginning I wanted to do what the doctors told me to do. I was scared to do anything else. Uh, And so really and truly the medications did get me feeling better to where i could function very quickly so i'm very very fortunate for that um, and they put me on like an an immune modulator i think it was imurian um, and um in a steroid temporarily to kind of knock things into submission really fast and i was on something else i can't remember what else um, and then then i got online and started going down all of the rabbit holes So I was looking at nutrition, I did some allergy testing, like food allergy testing, and it said, you know, basically I was allergic to everything. I really, it's just because I was so inflamed that I was responding to everything and had, you know, horrible leaky gut, which I didn't know anything about at the time. Um, So it was figuring out, okay, what foods do I need to eat right now? And then what foods can I slowly incorporate back in. It was taking time to eat. For me, the the stress and the rushing around, anything that would basically interrupt or screw up my digestion was really not good for me. Um, I got off coffee for a while because I was big, big Starbucks addict. I'm still kind of a Starbucks addict, but I get different things now. (laughs) I'm smarter about what I get. uh, and I know my limits. And then also a big thing was, you know, I was having horrible symptoms during dental school and during my first pregnancy. And I just didn't know that that was Crohn's that that was my gut saying, Hey, you need help. Um, And so during those times, it was like the rush, rush, rush and eat on the run and scarf down lunch in 10 minutes and then get right back to patients. Um, And so knowing that all of that really was not good for me and putting my foot in the sand and say, okay, I'm going to sit down and eat lunch um, was really helpful. So it was, it was like basic, basic stuff. It was eating better foods that worked for me. It was not eating as much of the toxic foods that weren't good for me. It was resting when my body said I needed to rest. And it was sitting when my body said I needed to sit.
1: I loved what you said about pharmaceuticals, that there is a time and a place for them. But it's funny to me that the mainstream medical system says, quite often you know oh it's not anything that you're eating but here eat all these pills for the rest of your life
0: <laughs> they literally told me like looked me in the eye and said that my diet had nothing to do with my illness like that's just stupid that's not <laughs> it's stupid it's like this is like that's
1: the standard of care though right that's the standard of care um Well, I, for people who don't know, I would love for you to give me a bit of some very basic, and I know they will be controversial topics between regular dentistry and your type of dentistry. And we can start wherever you want. Fluoride is always my favorite topic of discussion of how I believe it's all right in nature, but I always refuse it if the dentist that I go to says, oh, we're just going to put fluoride on your teeth. So I would love to hear some differences between regular dentistry and the way you practice dentistry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we can we definitely want to talk about fluoride. That's a biggie. Um, another really biggie is the, those old silver fillings that are 50% mercury and how we handle those. So most dentists now are no longer using the silver amalgam fillings. They are 50% mercury. We were always taught in dental school that once they were mixed together and mixed with the other metals that they were safe. But I really seen too much evidence that there is still mercury vapor that leaches from those fillings in our teeth, in our mouths. Um, And so anything that causes heat or friction in those amalgam fillings will cause mercury vapor to escape that can be absorbed through our oral tissues. You know, we swallow it, it's just not good for us.
1: Um, <laughs> right. We were talking about the mercury fillings.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, so when we, when we remove those, if we remove amalgam fillings, a normal dentist, and how I was taught in school is we just drill those suckers out of there. So if heat and friction is going to cause mercury vapor to escape, what do we think happens when I take a high-speed drill to that sucker? There's all kinds of exposure. And why OSHA hasn't started coming into dental offices to protect dental workers from this mercury exposure, I really have no idea. Why they haven't visited dental schools to measure mercury levels in the clinics, in the dental school, like when I took boards and I was in my first trimester of my pregnancy, absorbing all of that crap. Um, So that part really upsets me. So a huge difference between more traditional mainstream dentistry and biological dentistry is that we have very specific safety protocols in place when we remove those amalgam fillings. No, we don't place them, but most dentists don't anymore. They're kind of outdated. Um, But when we remove them, we have a checklist of everything that we go through to make sure that that tooth and that filling is isolated, that we filter the air, that the patient is protected, that myself and my assistant are both protected from mercury vapor in the air. So that's really a biggie. Now on the fluoride, obviously fluoride is another big one. Um, And I would say the main difference there is it's not just about not using the fluoride treatments after you're cleaning. It really is taking it two, three steps beyond that is we've made a value statement that it's not going to be in our office at all. So we have to continually... Filter out what we, the materials that we're using. We're always curating and looking at our products that we're using. Make sure that we're double checking the ingredient list. Because believe it or not, when I buy dental supplies from my dental supply companies and we look at the packaging, it's not like the -the over-the-counter things that we buy where there has to be a label and an ingredient list on it. In the composites I use and the things that I put in people's mouths, I have to dig for the ingredients. And a lot of times that means we have to call the manufacturers and ask for a specific ingredient list, ask to make sure, is there fluoride in here? Is there not fluoride in here? We're constantly saying, oh, oh, we thought this one was okay. Turns out it's not okay. And then we have to switch it out for something else. So just because someone is turning down that fluoride treatment in the dental office, just know that everything else that is readily available to us typically has fluoride in it. The toothpaste that's used, um, they're probably not filtering fluoride out of their water. So there's fluoride in the water, obviously. Um, The composites that we use, the bondings that we use, it is potentially everywhere.
1: Can you touch on why fluoride is in the water and why the government originally thought it was a good idea?
0: So this goes right, you know, kind of mid-century, World War II era. Um, They were finding and results were really, really interesting where they were seeing that communities where the fluoride levels were naturally very high, people had fewer cavities and tended to have stronger teeth. It's also interesting is that the ones with very high fluoride levels had this staining and modeling of their teeth as well, where they weren't quite so attractive. Um, But that's another story. They didn't really connect. It took them a little bit longer to make those connections. Um, And so the theory is, the rumor is, (laughs) It just depends on who you ask and where and when you ask. But the, the theory slash rumor is that as you know World War II and all the in- industry, all the farming that was happening, it was a big booming time. And one of the byproducts of the fertilizer industry was fluoride. They didn't have really a good place to put it. So it was kind of a what everybody thought as a win-win is they could use this fluoride, this byproduct from industrial waste basically or fertilizer waste, use this byproduct in municipal water in order to decrease the rate of cavities for the communities where that water was. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And it seemed to be fairly effective in the beginning. Um, The ones who adopted this practice pretty early, cavity rates tended to go down, which was great. You Fast forward several decades later, um, you actually start looking at data from other countries. The decay rates in other countries lowered the exact same as the decay rates in the United States regardless of whether they added fluoride to their water or not. So it kind of goes back, you can see the same type of data when you start looking at the history of vaccines also, where it, same exact thing, you can see these rates of disease decline for a various number of reasons, whether that's better hygiene, I think that's probably a, a really big one, better hygiene, better knowledge, um, more preventive care, all of these things were leading to a decrease in disease, but it just so happened to be around the same time as adding fluoride to the water. And so, fluoride gets a lot of the credit for that. So it's really interesting. you know, I I really do think that people have good intentions, and I want to believe that, but kind of like, kind of like a lot of other things in the last three years, where you start to question, how good really were everyone's intentions when those decisions were being made so so that's kind of how the how water and fluoride got started is it true
1: that mercury is still taught in dental school and dental hygiene school as a preferred method for filling cavities
0: as a as far as I know, it's still taught as a excellent and viable option. Um, now I don't know. It's me and dental schools. I'm I'm not up there hanging out anymore. Um, once I was done, I was kind of done <laughs> done with the dental school people, um, mostly because I'm in the people. I'm now one of the people they told me to stay away from when I was in (laughs) dental school. (laughs) (laughs) One of those people.
1: (laughs) One of my kind of people.
0: So I think they really still love it. I do know that. So I believe it was the FDA who came out a couple of years ago and said, okay, we really think that it's not advisable for pregnant women or children to get amalgam fillings. Um, and that was as far as, as they went with that statement. But as far as I know, there was a still, even with that very mild statement, there was a good deal of backlash from the ADA and, and the powers that be in dentistry. I don't think that that was received very well. And that, you know, I've heard some some really great old school well-meaning dentist whose argument is when you look at underserved areas specifically third world countries where the dental technology is not the same they don't necessarily have access to dental clinics with proper suction and isolation and curing lights Um, and so in that case their view is that if you can have a good tooth restoration that can be performed well in the presence of blood and water and saliva, which is true, like amalgam is easier to use for those reasons. You can have a not ideal environment and it still works pretty well, Um, I think. And it doesn't hurt that the mercury makes the whole restoration kind of bacteriostatic, Uh, so, so uh, there are some benefits, but I, it, I just hate that idea of that concept of poor people don't have enough. So let's throw more toxic stuff at them because at least it's something I just, man, I just hate that idea.
1: I've also heard very, crazy stories, but it all makes sense in the way that our bodies are connected, that if you have mercury fillings and you have any other kind of metal in your body, it can act as a magnet and you can start having chronic pain in other areas because those metals are trying to magnetize to each other.
0: So, you know, I haven't seen any data on the actual magnetism, but I that is taught in the biological programs that it forms like this electrical circuit, kind of like a battery. And so different metals will have different electrical charges. And so you kind of mess with the balance of the whole system when you start to have different foreign materials interacting with each other. And it's, you know, whether some people react or not, obviously I have plenty, plenty, of 70, 80, 90 year old patients with a mouthful of amalgam fillings and 60 root canals, I'm exaggerating, obviously, um, because most of them don't have teeth (laughs) by that age, uh, by the time they're in their nineties, there are plenty who do just fine with a lot of that stuff with no noticeable symptoms that we know of. But the principle of biological medicine and biological dentistry is that we go beyond the germ theory of disease and we look at the terrain theory of disease. So what is each individual person's terrain? Is there, you know, is it somebody who grew up on a farm who ate good food and, you know, there was somebody to cook healthy meals every night for them? Like, Many of our elderly patients had a much cleaner upbringing. And then we'll have some who are, you know, maybe it's those women in their 40s or 50s who have had a lifetime of toxic exposures, the wrong genetics, the wrong traumas in their life, the wrong stressors. And then, yeah, we've seen weird things where. Maybe that one extra amalgam filling or that one root canal just coincidentally triggered a, an immune response and led to some symptoms for them that mysteriously ease up
1: or go away when those things are removed. Since you brought up root canals, I would love to hear your and protocol on root, root canals as I've heard from one of my favorite physicians, Dr. Thomas Levy, that 100% of them are infected, but they don't present any symptoms.
0: I, you know, he's got a good point. And I would say when you look microscopically, 100% of them will have some bacterial involvement. They will have some type of infection. Um, Now, the way I treat them is, is maybe different. It's for sure different than my mainstream colleagues, but maybe different than some of my biological colleagues too, because I'm, I'm much more of a realist and I'm very practical in my treatment. So I do have some colleagues in the holistic world who will say, you know, every root canal is a bad root canal and they should all be removed and replaced with implants You should never have one. If you ever have, you know, the choice between root canal and remove a tooth, you should always remove the tooth. And in the real world, I don't deal with always and never, you know, each patient is an individual. Um, Each patient gets to choose what they want to do. And so there are very tough conversations that we have about the pros and the cons, the risks and the benefits. So yes, I will say every root canal has the potential to harbor infection. And those infections are different than a tooth that's living. You know, a, a tooth but that does not have a root canal, our teeth are living, they have blood supply, they have nerves. And if the tooth becomes so infected, that the dentist says it needs a root canal, then what we're doing is disinfecting the inside of the tooth as best we can. And we do that by removing the nerve. So it removes the source of pain, but we also remove the blood supply. So because there's no blood supply, blood is what carries oxygen. Now there's no oxygen in that area, but you still have all these little tubules you know when you look on an on an x-ray and you look at a root canal it's you see the root that's this little triangle thing and the root canal is this tiny little almost worm-like thing that goes in the middle of it where the nerve and the blood supply the blood vessels used to be you remove all that well now there's still all of these other little tubules because your teeth are really more like a sponge they're not a hollow tube with a tiny hole. They are a sponge. And so you've got all of this bacteria and what that sponge will start to harbor are not the oxygen loving bacteria, but it's like the deep, dark, creepy, crawly type of bacteria. And those are the ones where for some people, they can be a little more, a little more toxic than, than others.
1: What's the care and treatment that you recommend after someone gets a root canal?
0: After somebody gets a root canal, I think it's always helpful to do to support the area with some ozone really. And ideally if ozone can be used in the procedure itself where that's one of the things that they are cleaning the inside of the tooth out with, I think that's really good. Um, And then always, if you can inject a little bit of ozone near the root of that tooth, just to support the area, to support healing, then I think that can be really beneficial.
1: I have an entire one hour episode on ozone, but maybe for listeners who didn't catch it, can you give an overview of what
0: ozone is? Yeah, absolutely. And they should go back and listen to that episode. I listened to it yesterday. It's really good. Thank you. I love my naturopaths who are using ozone in all kinds of ways. Um, I've even got a couple of like ozone clinic, ozone spa type of places in the Metroplex that I send patients to frequently too. So ozone is basically supercharged oxygen. It is the cleanup crew of our atmosphere. So when you hear the weather guys talk about high ozone levels, it's not because ozone is bad and dangerous in itself. It's because ozone is the cleanup crew. And if the environment, if our atmosphere is really highly polluted, then more ozone will drop from the higher levels of the atmosphere into the lower levels to help clean up all the crap basically. Um, And it's, you know, on a granular atomic level, you know, the oxygen in the air is O2. It's two molecules of oxygen. Whereas when you put an electric charge to that, like in a lightning storm um, or an ozone generator, if you apply an electric charge to it, then it'll form O3. So three molecules of oxygen. And that O3 is very unstable it's a very strong oxidizing agent. So similar, similar function as bleach in oxidizing things. And it does a really, really effective job at oxidizing or killing basically uh, any kind of bacteria, fungus, viruses. It will help break down and help us process our unhealthy human cells. But then our healthy cells that do still have good antioxidant structures around the cell membrane, those healthy cells, it will provide a really good boost of oxygen to help upregulate the immune response of those cells. So very, very effective, um, similar almost to an antibiotic, but obviously with without the same unfortunate gut effects that antibiotics can have. Um, And then obviously the dosing, the application is way different because there's no pill for ozone basically.
1: Thank you for explaining that. On the flip side of that coin, what's the worst thing you can do after having a root canal?
0: Oh, good question. The worst thing you can do after having a root canal uh, I mean, probably just adding more toxic crap to your body. I mean, I guess if you went and had some really delicious fast food um, and then stood under a telephone pole with crazy high, or a 5G tower with crazy high EMF, <laughs> and then you put and then on top of your root canal, you put a metal crown that's a different material than another metal, metal crown in your mouth. (laughs) Okay. Good idea. Good
1: ideas to avoid. Right. I learned this in Chinese medicine and I'm not sure if it's the same, um, for biological dentistry, but I learned that every tooth is connected to an organ. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah. So I love to pull out that tooth meridian chart. Um, and I love explaining it to patients too, because the ones the ones who know are like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> and the ones who don't know are like, what the heck is that? What do you mean? And so then we get to go into, okay, this is my, my fun Eastern medicine moment. Uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm not trained in Eastern medicine, but this is what little bit of Eastern medicine I have been trained in. Uh, and it is, it's that energetically, that each tooth in our bodies is connected to a different organ, a different system, a different part of the body. And so when Western medicine or when, you know, the the typical things that I was taught in dental school, when they're not giving us really clear answers, then it's really helpful to go to that tooth meridian chart and say, okay, well then let's look at this. Are there any correlations that we see here? And that, you know, when we're talking about root canals especially that can be really helpful because let's say let's say somebody does have a root canal and they're worried about it but there's nothing clinically that i can see wrong with the root canal but still you know the patient's very holistically minded they're they're worried about having a root canal period then okay we go to that tooth meridian chart and we'll say okay let's say there's a root canal on tooth number 3 tooth number three is connected to breast tissue. So are there any problems with your breast? Do you have a history of breast cancer? Do you have a family history of breast cancer? And then if there's a connection there for the patient, then that patient might say, okay, I, you know, my mom died of breast cancer. So I want to err on the side of being more proactive and even if I don't see, you know, if you're telling me there's no clinical reason to remove this tooth, I want to choose to do so prophylactically because of this connection that I want to make sure I avoid. So it really helps us in those decision making conversations that are not obvi- always so obvious. Do you see a
1: common tooth? popping up over and over within your patients where you're always bringing out that guy saying this is what I see most often and some maybe just some kind of common theme that you're seeing
0: well the the first molars are so common to need big restorations anyway that they're the ones that we talk about the most but it's you know it's Mostly because we get those teeth when we're six years old. They've got all these deep grooves. Kids don't take care of them well. Um, It, you know, it starts with a filling when you're seven or eight. And if you get a filling on that tooth when you're seven or eight, There's a good chance by the time you're 50 that you've got a root canal and a crown on that tooth just because dentistry doesn't last forever. The dental work doesn't last forever. Um, So I would say those teeth tend to pop up the most. um, But I I think it's more of like a practical time in the mouth. There are more dental issues with those teeth than anything else. I will tell you a story that was really fun and interesting, though, um, of this patient who. One of my patients who's just really, really in tune with her body knows when something's going on and she had this string of just months where she felt like there was an infection in her gums as specifically around her lower front teeth that made no sense to me clinically. What she was describing symptom wise did not match up with what I was seeing in her mouth at all so fast forward a couple of months later like we were just doing things just to try to make her feel better we would do ozone around the gums we do like some laser biostim around the gums just to see if we could make them more comfortable for her because she said they were painful even though they they weren't bleeding they didn't look swollen or inflamed well she came back a few months later and she's like you know i had the worst couple of months I was bleeding and I couldn't stop. I finally wound up going to the gynecologist and I had this horrible cyst on my uterus. So I was like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You had wet wear? (laughs) Oh, and it just so happens her gums had felt better also since she had seen me last. So yes, those lower front teeth, the incisors on the bottom are connected to all of your reproductive organs so she had this crazy cyst on her uterus once that was removed she had to have surgery to remove it once it was was removed everything in the front felt better
1: that's incredible <laughs> it's all connected
0: it's right? all connected yeah
1: now before you told me that story you mentioned about you mentioned something about 6 and 7 year olds getting cavities Can you tell me about child dentistry and if you practice that within your office?
0: I do. I've always loved working on kids. Uh, I actually got my start in dentistry as an assistant at a pediatric dental office. It was at Grin Central Station um, with Dr. Pat Ryan, who's amazing. I love him. He's in Plano. Uh, Not holistic at all, but just super, super nice guy. So that's how I started. So when I started dental school, I I already knew the conversations that worked because in pediatric dentistry, it is much more about behavior management, behavior modification than it is about the technical clinical side of dentistry. Even though the technical and clinical side is very important, it's the magic is what can you get a kid to do with you in your chair? (laughs) <laughs> so I enjoy seeing kids. We see a lot of kids. Um, we see a lot of young families in the practice. And that really has kind of become our our biggest niche is really those young, crunchy families who want to, you know, a lot of them homeschool, um, who want to do things more safer, more safe, who want to do things safer and more naturally. Um, Let's see. So when we're talking about what we actually do different, um, you know, we work a lot in prevention and habit formation and diet conversations. Those are probably our most common things.
1: I was a personal trainer and Pilates instructor for seven years and I never put two and two together. Even though my little sister is a dental hygienist, I never really put two or two together of it all starts with the mouth until I started actually listening to more podcasts about dentistry. So I oh, would wow. love for you to share some light and any kind of nutrition advice that you can. Oh,
0: that just for kids or for any age?
1: I think any age, but really with a focus on kids.
0: So really it does all start with diet. And I, man, I can't talk about it enough. I understand that a lot of people's ethical beliefs and sometimes religious beliefs might lead them towards a healthier diet that does not include meat. But I have such a hard time. My vegans have such a hard time getting the nutrients that they need to keep and maintain healthy teeth. Now, obviously there are exceptions to this. I ha- I do have vegans in the practice who do very well, um, but mostly when we're talking about diet change and we wanna make sure that you have the healthiest mouth possible, it is good quality animal products, like really, really high quality foods that focus on Hopefully, some fermented foods and really foods that will help you absorb those fat soluble vitamins. And if we're absorbing the fat soluble vitamins, then chances are there's going to be enough micronutrients to where we're absorbing the water soluble vitamins and the minerals that we need. You know, it's a wide variety of foods that includes both plants and animals. I actually listened to your podcast episode um, with the the president, right, of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, Really, Weston A. Price and paleo types of diets, I think, really hit the mark the closest on the optimal diet for dental health. I love to hear that.
1: I couldn't agree more. I'm a bit biased but I was interested in what you had to say about that. For sure, Um, for sure. I would love to hear your thoughts on oil pulling.
0: I love it in concept. I do not practice it because I do not have the patience to practice (laughs) it. (laughs) No, I would love for there to be some more studies done on it. Um, There are really just a few and it's mostly around the ancient Ayurvedic practice which is with sesame oil, um, which I tried one time. And if you've ever done it with sesame oil, that one time will probably be enough. Um, that stuff is disgusting. I I don't know, I'm just not used to it. I'm sure if it was butter, can we start a butter pulling trend? Oh, I like that idea. How amazing would that be? I just came up with that. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> On the Welcome to wellness podcast. <laughs> Butter pulling is going to be the trend of 2024. I'm telling you. I love it. All right. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put a lot of hype around it. Right. Okay. So what I will say about oil pulling is uh, there's not a ton of data around it yet, which is unfortunate because every patient that I see who starts an oil pulling practice, and if they do it consistently, their mouth's always look better when they come back three or six months later, always. So absolutely. If that's something that you want to practice, I think it's, it's really good for the musculature. You know, you're swishing coconut oil for 15 minutes. Um, it's good for the muscles. So I think it's good from a myofunctional perspective. Um, it, the theory is that it helps plaque not stick. It helps rebalance the microbiome, it decreases black plaque buildup. So I really like it in concept for all of those theories. Um, I just don't have good data to say, yes, 100%, this is scientifically backed. And I do have other methods if you are like me and don't have the discipline to go through with that practice. What are those other methods? Uh, So other if we're using it primarily for gum health, which I think is why a lot of people use it for gum health, um, then there are other rinses that are, I've got a a homeopathic-based rinse that I really like that helps calm down inflammation. Um, There are some, as long as we're careful with essential oils and we're not overdoing it, then there are some essential oils like tea tree and other things that will kill bacteria, but not just go crazy on your microbiome that can be really helpful and really nice. So any, basically anything that's going to calm down inflammation, whether it's external like a mouthwash or it's internal in what you're ingesting is going to be helpful for your gums.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about plaque because I read that when you floss, you can add up to seven years to your life because you're not swallowing the plaque into your body. And that was from a top cardiologist named Dr. Stephen Sinatra. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, and I believe that is supported by the scientific data too. Um, it's also true that if you floss while you Already have gum inflammation that you're causing a bacteremia that could trigger a heart attack or stroke. So I would say be careful either way. <laughs> what I tell my my gum disease patients if they come in and we've got some active gum disease that needs to be treated, I will tell them specifically, don't floss yet. Like let's let's not start that yet. Especially if they're pregnant, then we really want to be careful um, because gum disease and is linked to poor pregnancy outcomes. It's really, really important that we get it under control quickly, but we're also really careful to make sure that we do that without causing that bacteremia, you know, causing that bacteria in the bloodstream that could hasten the process that we're trying to
1: avoid. When it comes to floss, my favorite is bamboo, because I somewhat recently learned that commercial floss is coated in Teflon. So I would love to hear your thoughts on being careful when you floss, if you recommend a water pick and just how you get in between the teeth.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, And that, I love the way you say that too, how you get in between the teeth. So when I talk about with patients, and when I talk about it in my online course, Um, part of the routine that I want people to have is I want them to brush and then I want them to clean in between their teeth but I don't specify whether that's flossing or a water pick or something else because it might be different for every person and we do want to make sure that we're careful um, and that we're doing things we're using methods that are effective for each patient Um, so it is true that some of the commercial floss flosses are made of teflon it's like a teflon tape basically one of them is still my all-time favorite because it's just so slippery and nice and just like yummy just to get in between the teeth so well um i wish i didn't love it so much and i'm not gonna say the name of it but it rhymes with ride and starts with a GL. Um, It's my favorite that I hate to love. Um, So I love the bamboo flosses and I love any kind of natural fiber that's used as floss. So yes, if you can find one, especially if it's waxed or it's in a tape shape, then those can get almost as nice to use as glide, they just don't slide the same way. Um, But yes, that would be my preference is that we're using something that's a natural fiber. um, And that it is the appropriate thickness to fit between your teeth. So for somebody like me, my teeth are so so tight together, there are no gaps anywhere. They are all hugging each other really nice because my mouth was really, really tiny because I had orthodontics in the 90s and they just shoved teeth together and pushed them back, which is another conversation altogether. Um, but for people like me with really tight contacts, then yeah, those thin, that's why I love Glide so much. Those thin, super thin waxed flosses are going to be the easiest to get in there. But if you've had some recession or if you have any kind of gaps or spacing in between your teeth at all, then you're gonna want a thicker floss. I've got some people who really need almost like this yarn-like consistency to their floss to really be able to get between there and do a good job of removing plaque. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned a water pick. My patients who I we find some active gum disease. I would rather them use a water pick. You know, the, the data says they want everybody to use both a water pick and floss. And I just don't think that's practical for most people. Um, so I will prioritize the water pick over floss and have that be their only clean between the teeth method, at least in the beginning. And then if they wanna add flossing later, they can. But to me, flossing is a really amazing preventive tool it's not necessarily a good therapeutic tool if there's already disease present.
1: What would you recommend someone fill their water pick with?
0: Ooh, you can do all kinds of fun stuff there. Um, and I was told by the lovely water pick representative that came to our office that if you put anything in there besides water, it will void the warranty. So, just know you will avoid the warranty. (laughs) But but I will have people do either a couple of teaspoons of food grade hydrogen peroxide, or if they're already using the homeopathic rinse from my office, then I'll have them do a couple of teaspoons of that in there. Um, Those are probably the most common ones that I do. I used to recommend you know a couple of drops of essential oils and then I had an aromatherapist get really really mad at me because she said she said it's just too easy for the oils to clump and then you'd get one big clump that comes out of the water pick at once and it would you know burn one area and not be as effective in the others um so I I took her advice and I no longer recommend that you put a couple of drops of tea tree oil in your water pick.
1: One of my favorite things that I do is I do use a little mixture of clove and tea tree oil and I'll put one drop on my thumb and then I'll run it down my string of floss and then I use
0: that as my. Yes, I love that. Love, love, love that. A plus. <laughs> it's
1: probably more of a question just for me and my super A type personality, but do you recommend floss or water pick before you brush your teeth or after?
0: That's a great question. I love that question. Do you know why? Because it reminds me of a question that somebody asked Martha Stewart in a magazine about which should you do first? Should you dust or vacuum? (laughs) It's basically the same question. And so Martha Stewart had a very typical, you know, type A Martha Stewart type of answer. And she said both. You should, you should dust and then vacuum and then dust again. So if you really want to uh, just be all in with your type A tendencies, then you should floss and then brush and then floss again. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just
1: kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, okay. I got to add this to my routine now. Jokes on (laughs) you. Okay. Good to know i would probably add in my opinion on the vacuuming and dusting because i would say dust first but when you vacuum make sure you vacuum with a vacuum that holds water because then you actually get i feel like it twice as clean because Uh, you're not just and
0: then it it won't pick up the dust Uh, (laughs) nice called the rainbow vacuum i'll send you a link (gasps) oh that sounds fun that might be my new obsession no. So I think if I remember, um, if I remember the last time I read any studies on it, I think that the, the, the dental hygiene associations were recommending flossing first and then brushing, um, which is so like dental hygienists. Um, if you know enough dental hygienists, they're lovely, lovely people and perfectionists at keeping teeth clean. And they are always the, you know, they're the do I dust or vacuum first type of people. Um, so I am much more of a realist and a I'm much more pragmatic. I'm just happy you floss. Oh. <laughs> so you do it in whatever order you want to do it in. You do it in the car. I don't care if you do it morning or night. Dude, if you are flossing and brushing, you are in like the top 1%. So just keep rocking it.
1: One caveat I think I would add, and I read this probably 15 years ago, I think in Self Magazine, but they said when you floss, make sure to never use the same portion of floss that you use in each tooth, but rather a new piece so that you're not redistributing plaque. Is that true?
0: that is also true but impractical so if you do it by the sink then just like run it underwater for like a second if you're running out of string that's clean Uh, but yeah I do move it on down just a little bit
1: now I want to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of ingredients because I love that you said you call the manufacturers and ask what's in there that's something that I would do. And since teeth are living, I heard that you should never use a toothpaste or ingredient that contains glycerin because it actually coats the tooth, which blocks it from breathing and stops saliva from doing its important job. What is your opinion on glycerin?
0: I'm so glad you asked that. You're not the only one that's asked that recently. um, And so I just did a little Instagram video about it too. So that concept came about um, the best we can see. It came about from a chemist in the 90s who published a book on this with this theory, Um, a chemist, not a dentist. And he never did get a paper published on it. So he never did actually do a study on it. Um, So I, I understand the theory and the science of it. It makes a little bit of sense to me. So I get where it comes from. Um, And then there were a couple of holistic bloggers who really took that idea and ran with it and I think made it really, really prevalent online and in all of our crunchy circles where, where we get all of our information from. Um, but there's just no data to support that glycerin is harmful at all. So I am, I say use what works. You know, if you've got a toothpaste that you love, that seems to be effective and it doesn't have glycerin in it, there's no reason obviously to go seek it out and go try to find it. But most of the time glycerin is from pretty natural sources. Usually the manufacturing is relatively clean. So um, I really don't mind it. It helps the mouth feel of a toothpaste. And so it helps that, that cosmetic feel that toothpaste has it makes water cling to it a little more easily it's very water soluble it's soluble in saliva so it's not staying on the teeth so the fact that it's you know i don't understand the theory of it making almost this barrier around the teeth that keeps beneficial ingredients from absorbing into the tooth i just don't see the data for that Um, and some of the toothpaste that we use in our office that in my practice have been very effective do have glycerin in them.
1: Okay, good to know. I'm glad you broke that myth for me. <laughs> Can you explain the difference between micro-crystallized hydroxy... Probably messing this word up. Hydroxyapatite versus nano-hydroxyapatite?
0: Uh, Hydroxyapatite is... Um, is how we said it in in dental school in the old stopping grounds and yeah so the crystalline structure it's basically just the size of it and the nanoparticle calcium hydroxyapatite is going to be more readily absorbed into that enamel matrix into the the crystalline structure of the enamel than the micro hydroxyapatite which is Better absorbed into the tooth enamel than just your standard calcium hydroxyapatite. So the smaller the particle gets, the more easily absorbed. Uh, two of our most popular toothpaste: one uses a microparticle, the other uses a nanoparticle. And my understanding from what I researched so far is that the nanoparticle is more of a manufactured product whereas the microparticle is is able to come from natural sources.
1: Can you tell us what those
0: natural sources are? You know that's a good question. My understanding is that it's bovine most of the time.
1: Yep that's been my research too what toothpaste do you recommend in your practice? And also bonus question, because I have so many friends with kids, what kind of kid toothpaste do you recommend? Uh,
0: They're basically the same for kids and adults. Um, I really like the the calcium hydroxyapatite, especially in a practice where we've put a, a hard line in the sand that we don't use fluoride, then absolutely two of our must have ingredients if we wanna prevent cavities, is hydroxyapatite and xylitol. So the two favorites that we have are um, are Boca and Risewell. They're both they both are have really clean ingredients. The companies have both been pretty transparent about their ingredients. If there have been any questions here or there, um, which have come up. And so I appreciate the integrity of both companies and their flavors have been really well tolerated by kids and adults. So they had both of them have different types of mints. Um, they've got super fun, sweet flavors for kids like cake batter and orange cream and cocoa, ginger and all kinds of things. Um, so those are my two, probably the two that we use the most. And. Um, there is another one that sometimes we'll use there. Well, not sometimes we use it pretty often therapeutically. It's from a big brand from a big dental supplier. Uh, It's called MI paste. And that really is the OG remineralizing toothpaste that came on the market. And that's where really primarily the best research on remineralizing toothpaste came from is from GC America who manufactures MI paste and MI paste is great um but it because it's from a big dental supplier you know a big manufacturer the ingredients are not nearly as clean so very very effective there is a version without fluoride which is the version that we use in the office and so we use that with you know if we're do we want something that has more data behind it, more proof of efficacy, or is our priority more clean ingredients? And we make that judgment call with the patient.
1: Why is remineralizing toothpaste important?
0: Well, it's really how our teeth protect themselves from cavities. So anytime we expose our teeth to lower pH saliva, and that's if we are eating carbohydrates, really eating just about any meal at all, we're going to lower the pH of the saliva. And when the pH of the saliva is lowered, that acidic environment is going to weaken the tooth enamel. It's the same way that the bacteria in our mouths can cause cavities is the bacteria will excrete acidic waste. They basically poop acid on our teeth and that can break down the enamel over time. I know it sounds gross, right? But I like to say poop acid to the kids, especially. Uh, that's the most fun. <laughs> so anytime we eat, the pH will lower and then over the course of, in healthy mouth, over the course of the next 20 to 30 minutes, the pH will naturally raise back up to a more neutral level. So when that system is out of balance, either there's more bacteria creating more acid than our buffering capabilities can handle, um, or we're ingesting things that are very acidic, you know, our our lemonade soda type of people, um, all of those things can disrupt and delay the natural remineralization of the tooth Which can make you more prone to cavities. So, anytime we can speed up that remineralizing process, we are protecting those teeth from cavities and just bulking up the strength of the enamel.
1: I've heard, and maybe this is just a rumor, but I've heard that you shouldn't brush your teeth right after eating or drinking because it can really disrupt or be really bad for the enamel. Is this true?
0: Very true. Very true. You want to wait at least 20 to 30 minutes to give those buffering capabilities time to do their thing, or you can cheat. You can cheat it, and you can have something with xylitol in it, or even rinsing with like a sodium bicarb product, you know, some like a uh, rinse with a diluted baking soda, um, something that can stimulate the, pH of the saliva to raise really quickly.
1: Now I've heard you mention the rinse, that homeopathic rinse that you have in your office. Mm -hmm. Are you able to share that recipe?
0: You know, it is an off the, we purchase it. It's available for practitioners only. Um, The name of the company is Stella Life and they have stellar results behind their products. Did you get that? (laughs) that. (laughs) Uh, So Stella Life, we've used for years in the office. Uh, They've had we have very very good results in soft tissue healing when using their products, and so that it's like I said, it's been my favorite for years.
1: And if someone wanted to make their own mouth rinse, would you recommend that? bicarb mix diluted bicarb. Okay, so a salt water rinse.
0: Yeah, so a salt water rinse that you can beef up with a little bit of tea tree oil, uh, maybe some clove, maybe um, a little bit of frankincense in there to support gum health. Um, Now, if we're talking tooth health, then I absolutely want some sodium bicarb in there. And I want some xylitol in there. You can get granulated xylitol. Um, sometimes you can even find it powdered or you can powder it yourself to make it a little bit easier to dissolve.
1: What are your thoughts on mother of pearl,
0: adding mother of pearl to your toothpaste? I love the concept. I haven't seen it much in practice, but from you know, just... So- scientific knowledge. It seems like it would be a great idea. I just haven't seen before and afters to confirm how effective it is.
1: Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you're able to reverse or slow down gum disease.
0: Heck yeah. Yeah, we can. Did you say gum disease or tooth decay? Because we can do both. Let's do both. (laughs) We can do both. For sure. Uh, So gum disease, absolutely. Gum disease is so, I love treating it. It's kind of my favorite because we can get such quick wins with gum disease. Tooth decay is harder because the wins are a lot slower. So it's, you got to play the long game with tooth decay. Um, But with gum disease, we can make quick progress really fast. And what's interesting is it's very similar to diabetes and that used to 20 years ago, the, the common knowledge was that it couldn't be, quote unquote, cured. It could only be managed and maintained. That's what they would say about diabetes. That's what they would say about gum disease. Well, now we know for both, for both of them, that they can be reversed. They can be healed. Yeah, you'll have to always be careful once you know, once you have it, you'll always have that tendency. But we can absolutely get it to reverse and heal.
1: I love that. And also I know it might be a bit controversial, but can you also slow down or stop the formation of cavities?
0: Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um Now, when it gets tricky is when we have to have the conversations with, it's usually with parents, about can can we reverse this particular cavity as in can we not do dental work on this tooth and reverse it naturally? That's when it gets tricky and it depends on the tooth and the child and the whole situation, the whole big picture because once tooth structure is missing, once you've had enough acid dissolve part of the tooth, then it's really hard. You're not gonna get tooth structure back. You know, once there's a hole, I have not yet seen a hole fill in, but I have seen broken tooth structure get hard again. So it is possible to get it to heal, but once we've gone past that enamel layer into the dentin, it's much much harder and it's harder to keep it stable
1: okay i have a few personal questions for you and i would love to know what's your source of motivation for getting up in the morning and going to work every day
0: well one is my kiddos i've got two growing girls and I, uh, I get up and go to work and sometimes miss more than I wish I missed with them. So I hope that at least while I'm there, I'm helping people and doing so in such a way that it makes them proud and inspires them to go and and do what they love and, and love who they do it with. Like I do. Um, so that's my biggest motivation my second is that, you know, I had a, a normal dental practice in another town for a almost nine years um, that I absolutely loved, but I was really burnt out. Um, I, the normal way of practicing dentistry was tiring and frustrating and was um, really disheartening in a lot of ways. And so for me to be able to have a practice where I get to work with people who share the same values that I have, who take ownership and accountability for their own health, just like I do for my own health, um, to be able to really make a difference in people's lives and not just you know, do the the drill, fill and bill. There's nothing wrong with doing some really good restorative dentistry. Um, that can be life-changing too, but to really sit knee to knee, eye to eye with people and get them to participate and get them to get their bodies to heal and do what they're supposed to do. That gets me so excited. So, so excited. Now, I know
1: this isn't, a personal question, but I did read it on your website. And I had a client one time when I was a trainer who I referred to my little sister, the dental hygienist. And when my client went there, she put herself a 10 out of 10 as being very scared and anxious to see the dentist. So what do you do in your practice to calm anxious patients?
0: You know, it's unfortunately, a, or maybe fortunately, a really big part of my job is managing anxiety and helping walk through a lot of dental anxiety with patients. Um, and it might even be more so in the, the patient population that I serve now. Um, I don't know if that's because there's, you know, a lot of us just have a general distrust for, all of healthcare, um, whether that's just a holistic thing or a COVID thing or a combination of both, probably a combination of both, where um, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of mistrust around healthcare in general and specifically around dentistry. And so we do have, we pull out all the stops and we try to meet patients where they are in terms of their dental anxiety. It's a real thing. I've had people had panic attacks in the chair, getting ready to start an appointment. And so it's something that we just learned to manage. Um, If we can manage that with breathing exercises, with, you know, just the environment, with calming music, with sometimes gadgets, I've got an alpha Stem device that can be really helpful for some people. Um, If we can manage it that way, obviously that's, our preference most of the time, but for others, it's they're either their anxiety is too great or, um, or they just don't want to manage it that way. And they would rather nap through the whole thing. <laughs> then we, that's another one of those times where we're so thankful for pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so I do have, I have a, a colleague that comes in and will provide IV sedation. Um, we have a, a pediatric anesthesiologist that comes in and will help with our kiddos, and then um, someone else who works with our adults. So we can we can make dentistry as easy as it can be.
1: <laughs> What's a common misconception about biological dentistry that you think most people get? Um.
0: Well, <laughs> there's um, a funny story about in the early days, right after I came out as a holistic dentist. Um, and one of my patients went to go see an endodontist. That's just a root canal specialist had a root canal. He came back to see me. Um, and this was before that endodontist knew that I considered myself a holistic dentist, uh, And so this endodontist and my patient were having this conversation and then kind of joking about holistic dentistry. And his joke was, oh, what do they do? Do they just sit around a candle and sing Kumbaya and hope that your cavity goes away? So so I would say some of the misconceptions about biological dentistry are, um, some people think that we don't use any kind of medications or any kind of pharmaceuticals. That's obviously not true. I think they have a time and a place. Um, I had one person one time who didn't even think that I used numbing shots uh, because it was a a medication. Um, So they wondered if they were going to be able to be numb for their procedure. Oh gosh. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do work on most people without some numbing. Um, that's really a big one, and then I, you know, I think we have a reputation of uh, of being overly aggressive where we shouldn't be. Meaning, you know, removing amalgams that don't need to be removed, removing root canal teeth that don't need to be removed. It's obviously that's always if a patient wants to do dental work that's more prophylactic or it's more elective treatment, then as long as it fits within my ethical scope of care, then I'm happy to do something for a patient that's elective, knowing that the patient knows that it's elective treatment. Um, And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, sometimes we have a reputation of practicing supervised neglect. Um, You know, because we don't like when patients need root canals, we prefer that patients don't get root canals. Um, you know, sometimes we might give off the impression that we're not doing needed demo work. Uh, and that's not the case either. Again, it's case by case basis, depending on what the patient needs and what the patient wants, then we help walk through those decisions with them.
1: Let's say someone's on a budget and they can only afford to visit the dentist once a year. What are some options for basic mouth and dental oral hygiene to keep your mouth as clean as you can?
0: Um, I would say if you can only go once a year, then I would say it's really the most important thing is when you do go, that you find a dentist and a hygienist who's really able to coach you on what you specifically should be doing for your mouth during the course of that year, um, because most of the time, if you're going to a really busy practice, um, you know, especially a, a lot of our really high volume insurance based chain type of practices. Um, they're getting you in and they're doing their thing, they're, you're, you're getting a cleaning, uh, but you're not getting the education piece and you're not getting that relationship and that conversation, then, then you're not going to know what to do to be able to avoid, keep coming in. So really it's about individual needs. I would say, yes, you need a, good routine morning and night to take care of your teeth, that's going to look different for every patient. Usually it's brushing a couple of times a day. It's cleaning in between. It's, you know, ideally tongue scraping once a day. Um, A rinse might be helpful. It might not. If you're just picking something off the supermarket shelf for a mouthwash, then that's really just mouth perfume. It's not doing you any good. Um, so, so that really is, is the biggest thing is it, every person is an individual and it's most important to find a good team that can help guide you on what to do at home.
1: I'm so glad that you said that. And I can't believe I forgot to talk about mouthwash. I like that you called it mouth perfume. I also like to call it an endocrine disruptor. Can you, I know we're getting close on time, but can you tell us about the dangers of mouthwash, commercial mouthwash?
0: Yeah. So I used to be a straight up Listerine addict, especially when I first started in dentistry as a dental assistant. Um, And we just had the big pump bottle of like this huge industrial size pump bottle of Listerine with the cups next to it. So in between, like every two or three patients, I was getting a little pump and doing a swig and rinsing, um, and it was great, and it would burn like heck, Um, but that was great because it must be working if it's burning, right? Um, (laughs) So all of those commercial mouthwashes will typically have an alcohol base. That's part of how they're preserved they're going to be mostly alcohol and a lot of them are gonna be really highly acidic. Some of them as acidic or more acidic than soda. Um, So not only are we doing more harm than good to our tooth enamel, if we happen to be one of those people who's prone to getting cavities, but also it's going to dry out the soft tissue in the mouth So over time, you're really not doing that much good in terms of gingival inflammation. So it's not really helping your your gum disease status at all. And if anything, it's really the equivalent of taking a blowtorch to the garden when really you just need to pluck a few weeds. You know, when we're talking about your microbiome, if you want to knock everything out, like an antibiotic would do, well, Listerine scope, those types of mouthwashes, it's all basically the same. It's like a blowtorch. Um, really what you need is to till the garden and give it some love. <laughs> I'm so glad
1: you said that. I used to be the same way with Listerine. I worked at a, um, Country club one time, and they mm-hmm. had it in a little pump bottle. And yes. every time I used the
0: bathroom, every time. I every slept. time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Only the fancy bathrooms have the mouthwash in them. And that's how you know it's a fancy place. You worked at a really nice country club. Totally right. <laughs> All
1: right, Dr. Ingram. Who or what has been the most influential resource in your career?
0: Ooh. Who or what? Um, I would say really right now it's, it's my holistic dentistry colleagues. So that would be the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. It's way too long of a name. They didn't ask me. Um, It's been around since the seventies. So I didn't have control over that, but uh, the IAOMT so that is the largest organization that provides continuing education to biological dentists or dentists who are interested in biological dentistry. Um, that professionally, that's my biggest source of information. Um, the second would be really the holistic community itself. So our, the crunchy mom groups, the All the, the holistic practitioners that are online, the bloggers, um, just really moms sharing good information with other moms is, I think it's great for all of us, uh, whether you're a practitioner or not. I think just all of us sharing our, our information and sharing the wisdom and the things that we've learned is, is really important and empowering for everybody.
1: I love that. That's so beautiful. I love when you have that great community of people who are supporting, sharing the knowledge, especially what I learned today about glycerin. I also wanted to ask you almost one final question. What haven't I asked you that you'd like my listeners to know?
0: You know, there is actually a a story that has not been in the news, but should be in the news that I think it's really important for people to know about because it's going to be ongoing still for another year or two, I would suspect at least. Um, And that is a lawsuit that is happening. Um, I I don't know if you know this, don't know if your listeners know this, but there is a, a, a nonprofit that is so far successfully suing the EPA over the use of fluoride in our water supply. So if you haven't already, um, and Ashley you'll really like this, love this website if you're not already on it on a regular basis, it's fluoridealert.org. It's the website for the Fluoride Action Network. And they are really the primary group that has provided the legal fees in order to make this lawsuit happen. So there was a a study done, it's the National Toxicology Program. They did this meta-analysis where, you know, it's basically a study of studies. It's the highest form of peer-reviewed scientific evidence. Um, And so in this study done by the National Toxicology Program, it's, you know, funded by our government they're finding that there is a potential link between fluoride in our water and some detrimental effects like decreased IQ in our children. Um, There are currently more than 70 studies that are linking fluoride exposure to decreased IQ levels. Um, That that can be life-changing for families. To know that, you know, if you've got a kid who's who's struggling in any way, knowing that, you know, IQ points, 10, 10 degrees in either direction could mean the difference between needing special services and not, or functioning in school or not. Um, so this is a really, really big deal. And the, um, the HHS secretary, Rachel Levine. Uh, was really instrumental in making sure that the public did not get to see this review by the National Toxicology Program. And luckily a judge finally uh, compelled them to reverse that and has released the study so that it's available to the public. So I really would encourage everybody to visit Fluoride Action Network. support them in any way that you can, even if it's just with your prayers and to keep up on the news around that lawsuit, because it's going to be ongoing for a while. You know, the legal system takes a really long time. Um, So I think it'll be really important for all of us to make our voices heard when it comes to what's actually in our water. You know, do we want to get a say in the medications that we're exposed to or do we not? I love
1: that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I hadn't heard about it. I had heard about separate lawsuits about people winning for being injured from the COVID vaccine and successfully winning those lawsuits. There's there's only a handful of them so far, but wherever we can take our wins. Yeah, we'll just pay.
0: keep them coming. We'll keep praying for all of them.
1: Where can listeners go to learn more about you?
0: Uh, listeners can find me just about anywhere. Um, I would say we're probably on Instagram the most. So uh you'll have a, a link to our Instagram. It's just Flourish Dental Boutique. Um we have a podcast as well. And one of our podcast episodes, one of my hygienists and I, we talk specifically about the lawsuit that we just mentioned. Um, and so the the name of the podcast is The Flourish Podcast with Dr. Tony Ingram. Um, and you can find us online. Our website is www.flourish.dental. And our practice is in Richardson, Texas.
1: Which is close to Plano. Is that correct? Is, is someone looking Super for close. an airport to
0: into? Uh, yeah, we were like literally a rock throw from Plano.
1: Okay, correct
0: Well, I feel like I might have to make my way down
1: there because so far I haven't been able to find a biological dentist where I am. Um, I had a horrible dental experience, which I'm sure I can tell you about another time. So I am so thankful that you exist, that you are a holistic biological dentist, because I feel like the world needs more people like you. I'm really sorry to hear that you had such a horrible chronic disease but I'm really happy to hear that you overcame it and you came out through the other side and now you're helping other people.
0: Oh, Crohn's was the best gift that God could have given me, really. Aside from my kids and my husband, you know. Crohn's was the best gift for my career. How about that?
1: good. Good. way to look at it with the silver lining. All right. Well, Dr. Ingram, thank you so much for being on the show. I'd love to have you back. We can get a little bit deeper into orthodontics, which I know we didn't get to today, but I would love to have you back. I, I had such a great time and I learned a lot.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, we didn't even get to all the fun stuff, growth and development, Weston A. Price, Airway and Breathe, and John Nestor's book oh my gosh
1: questions on there so for the sake of time okay we'll make a list next time and we will go over the airway the breathing the jaw we'll do it all
0: tongue ties holy smokes we have so much to talk about
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right well i look forward to scheduling that next one i really appreciate your time thanks for joining us on the show today oh
0: you're welcome thank you so much (laughs) bye bye all right folks i hope you enjoyed the interview today Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode where we continue the conversation. We do a part two with Ashley where we get even deeper into airway and tongue tie and all of the things that we didn't have time to talk about in this episode today. So don't forget to come back in a couple of weeks. Check out the the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this one today. Have a good one.